Well, Father, we we come to you this morning and we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you, Father, how your word is that which renews our mind, it restores our soul, it corrects us, it, um, it enlightens us, and Lord, it gives us a vision of who you are. And Lord, that's what we need. Um, our hearts need to see you um, in all of your glory, high and lifted up as the eternal, uh, infinite God that you are. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning that you would help us to see you as you are. Um, Lord, as we see you as you are, we pray that it would so work in us, Lord, that that we would be um, guarding ourselves and, and aware of idols. One of the things we read about in your word so clearly, Lord, is that you're the only God there is, and yet we make gods in our own images um, for various reasons, Lord, but we do it. And we, we ask you, Lord, help us um, to not go the way of really all men and women um, apart from you and as we look in Isaiah, ancient Israel, and Lord, just their propensity toward unbelief, which yields idolatry. So Lord, help us to be full of hope, faith, and trust in you as we come through this lesson and may it increase. And uh, Lord, help me to communicate these things rightly uh, to encourage your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so t- today we are going to look at the second point in the statement of faith. So like I said, if, if you want to pull up the statement of faith on your phone, you can look at it. And remember, the statement of faith is not the bullet points that are on whatever page that is. Um, I can't remember the heading of that page on the website. But the statement of faith is actually about four or five pages. Um, but uh, this, this, the statement we'll be looking at this morning is the second point. Following what uh, the, the first point, which was on the Holy Scriptures. So the last, uh, there was a last couple times we were looking at the statement of faith. We talked about the Holy Scriptures, and the reason we do that, obviously, is because um, it's the baseline from which all understanding about who God is and His salvation comes. Um, without that, we're in the dark. We're ignorant. And so we talk about the Scriptures first. We want to talk about the fact that it's clear, it's infallible, it's authoritative, so on and so forth. So flowing from that now that we've established what the scriptures are, the nature of them, um, and the authority um, inherent in them, we want to look now at what they say. And what they say um, is, well, they say a lot of things, but they, they reveal God to us. So the scriptures reveal who God is to us. So this first point, begins to look at the nature of God. Not, oh, hey, that, you understand what I'm saying? Um, no, it, 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 it starts to open up for us the nature of God. So we want to look at who is God. And to be honest, as you, uh, as you look at the statement of faith, one of the things you'll realize the more you get acquainted with it is how short it falls of all the things you could say about the Lord. I mean, obviously, these are just, the statement of faith is really a fence. It's a fence to sort of keep in things that are true and protect from things that are not true. But it doesn't say all there is to say about what is true about God. It just puts up a big fence. Um, And so as we look this morning at uh, some of the preliminary things about the nature of God, just understand that. 
But even in saying that we're not mentioning all the things that we can say about God, one of the things that is clear as we look about look at it this morning is that everything we will say is profound. There is very little when you're starting to talk about the person of God that is sort of eh, you know, or boring or, you know, next. You don't get that sense if you're really paying attention to what you're saying and what God is saying about himself. Um, and so I hope we'll see that. So let me just read this first statement, and it's again, it's point two on the statement of faith, and unpack some of it this morning. So the statement says this, there is only one true and living God, a personal spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being and attributes, his power, holiness, justice, mercy, love, and faithfulness. And underneath each one of those points, you can see a little letter there and you go down to the footnotes there and you can see scriptures that undergird each one of the features of this statement. There is one true and living God, personal spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being and attributes. And so let's start looking at the first part here. So the statement begins by saying there is only one true and living God. Does the Bible point this out or is this something Christians impose on God? Well, this is something the Bible clearly points out. So let's turn first to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Here in Isaiah 44, the Lord gives promises about what he will do and undergirds those promises with who he is. Okay? So let's look at Isaiah 44, and let's just read, we'll read 1 through 8. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. And you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. So these are glorious promises. I mean, Isaiah 44 comes to us in the section of Isaiah 40 through 66, which really captures the future redemption God accomplishes through Messiah, right? And so in this particular section, God holds forth promises in light of this work that Messiah will do. And one of the things he will do is he will cause his spirit to be poured out. And as he pours out his spirit in some future day in Isaiah's time, of course, this was still a little fuzzy, but God is promising he's going to pour out his spirit one day on the offspring of Israel. And what will happen, the fruit of that will be these people will have a sense that they belong to the Lord. Right? So this is the promise of God that he will one day do this. It's a future-oriented 800 BC uh, prophecy. Verse 6. Now he begins to undergird his promises. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. <clears throat> yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time 
that I establish the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. <clears throat> Hold on. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? God says, I know of none. So clear. God undergirds his promises with his own godhood. He says, am I going to pour out my, I tell you, I pour out, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit. I'm going to gather people to myself. These people are going to be so aware of it, so, so, in, uh, so um, energized and thankful for it and, 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 and rejoicing in it. They're going to write it on their hand. I belong to the Lord. And how can you be sure that that's going to happen? Well, God says, as sure as I'm God and God alone, that will happen. And how does God prove that he himself is God? He proves it by saying, I'm the one who declares all things from the beginning to the end or from the end or declaring the end from the beginning and so on and so forth, that I am the first and I am the last and therefore everything in between. He is God, he says, and there is no other. Now, this is in a context where you will go on to read in Isaiah 44, idolatry is rampant, right? Idolatries begin to seep into the nation. And what God is doing here is he's contesting the existence of any other supposed deity. That's why he begins to talk about this stuff. God wants to contest the fact that there is no other deity. There's only me. And one of the main ways God challenges the existence of any other alleged deity is to challenge their knowledge and their foreknowledge. That is, he wants to challenge his people. Look, you, you begin to just fashion these idols, but let me ask you something. Do they know the future? Do they predict the future? Do they declare the future? Do they, they establish the future? Any of these things. That is... God is the one that establishes the future, just as it says here, he established the ancient nation of Israel. And this is actually tied to the people's comfort and hope, he says. It's actually tied to their comfort and hope. Look at verse 2. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not fear. Verse 8. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Isn't that interesting? Do not tremble, do not be afraid, do not fear. I'm God and there is no other. The Lord says, do not tremble or be afraid. Why? Because he says, have I not long since denounced it to you and declared it? In other words, God is saying, trust me. I'm the only one who knows the future. I'm the only one who declares the future. I'm the only one who establishes reality. Idols know nothing. They are nothing. They are the works of man's hands. Put your hope in me, the Lord says. The only God who controls and directs all future events. And again, what are they to hope in? What are they to think about when he says this? Well, back in verse 1 through 5. God's going to pour out all his blessings on the seed of Israel. And, and, the, and the temptation for them and for all of us is when God makes certain promises... And they don't come when we want. They seem to, to, to linger longer than we want. What ends up happening? 
Well, they begin to take matters into their own hands. Idolatry exists because people don't wait on the Lord. Idolatry exists because people want to, f- to fabricate and control the future for themselves. That's why idolatry comes about. They don't really believe that God is in control of the future. They think they are. This is one of the reasons that idolatry is such an affront to the true and living God. Because the one who makes the idol takes on the role that God alone is to have. But that's what we do, oftentimes. You begin to try to manipulate and scheme and control the future yourself for your own good. God makes promises and he says, look, I'm God. I've established history. Everything I've said has always come to pass. So trust me when I say what I say. Trust me. And then, you know, and like I said in chapter 44, God goes on saying and pointing out the folly of these idols. But this is how God presents himself, is the only God, undergirded by the fact and proven by the fact that God declares all things, he knows all things, versus ignorant, inanimate idols. This becomes a theme in Isaiah. So, so here God is getting the people to look at him exclusively and remember that he alone is God. There is no other God to be trusted. The implication here is that if you're looking to anything else for hope or security, you've become an idolater. That's the idea. And his people did in many ways. All right. Isaiah 45, the next chapter there. In this section here, Chapter 45, in this section, God gets very specific about the unfolding of future events. Matter of fact, he begins, he, um, he begins to declare a future ruler, which will be some 200 years from the time Isaiah is writing, who will help restore Jerusalem, like I said, a couple hundred years in the future. His name is Cyrus, right? His name is Cyrus, and I think he's mentioned, let's see, yeah, he's mentioned in 44.28, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. So God is going to raise up this ruler named Cyrus. Many of you know Cyrus is, or will be, from this time, he will be the future king of Persia, at that time when he reigns, Persia, I believe, was the largest empire to that point. And the Lord in this passage in Isaiah 45 is saying that he's going to raise up Cyrus to defeat the enemies and captors of Israel, namely Babylon, and spearhead through Cyrus the rebuilding of Jerusalem by sending Israel back there to reconstruct the temple and the wall. And so the question is, why does the Lord tell us this 200 years before Cyrus comes on the scene? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yep. So let's look at Isaiah 45 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. One of the things that, that you might know, you may not know, but there's, there's a theology out there called open theism. How many of you have heard of it before? 
Maybe half of you, maybe a little more than half of you, okay. Well, it was popular back when I was in college. The guy who postulated it, at least in a popular level, his name is Greg Boyd. He is still the pastor to the church in Minneapolis, as far as I know. And he basically says that God doesn't know all future events exhaustively. And he says God has full recognition of the past, full recognition of the present, but does not know all future events. He knows some of them, but not all of them. Okay, that's the, that's the gist of what he believes. And so there's some passages in the Bible that are just irrefutable, right? The cross, you can't certainly say that God didn't know that was going to happen. Well, he'll, he'll grant that, okay? But on all the other general events of history, he won't grant it. Well, when you come to Isaiah 45, you've got some explaining to do, right? You've got some serious explaining to do because what does God say here about this future King Cyrus? He says about this pagan king who literally doesn't have much to do with Israel other than what God is going to use him for, right? But at this point, he's a Gentile. We don't know much about him, but what we do know is that God is the one who is taking him, predicting here 200 years before, predicting taking Cyrus by the right hand to subdue nations before him. Now, we have no sense, really, that, that, I, that Cyrus knew the Lord in, in, a, in, a, in a way of, of, of being a child of God or anything like that. He was a pagan king, but God is saying here, I'm going to take him by the right hand and subdue nations before him, loose the loins of kings, open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. So think of all the things that God has to know to be able to declare that with certainty. Think of all the actions, the free will actions of human beings that he's got to know in detail to be able to say, this guy in 200 years, Cyrus, is going to end up being the most powerful king of, of that era. And he's going to have victory over victory after victory. And he's going to take spoils and have treasures. And he's also going to end up helping Jerusalem. How can God say with any certainty that that's going to happen if he is not in control of all the details of all of human affairs. And this is why we had this in the book of Isaiah. If you ever sort of scratched your head, why did we have all this about Cyrus? We have this so that you'll remember that God told you so. So that you will remember who God is. God is the God who, who, who knows, who foreknows, and who declares and establishes and creates the future. That's who he is. He's saying all this is going to happen through Cyrus. Now, verse 3, he continues to say this to Cyrus. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen, I have also called you by name, by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Why? Like uh, Albert said, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. There is no other God. There is no ultimate cause for the unfolding of historic events. God is absolutely, meticulously sovereign, and he is the only God there is. 
so that the, from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no God beside me. It's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, there's the God, he, you know, the, the God of Israel. This is a book where, you know, the Israelites and certain prophets write about God as they perceived him in their own little nation. But this is not what's happening here. This is God saying, there's a pagan king outside of Israel that I control too in a couple hundred years from now. So that we'll know he's not just the God of Israel. He's king of kings, period. He's the God of the nations. He's the only God there is. I am the one, he says, forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God gives us this so that we will know that he alone is God. So beware of any teaching that claims that God does not have exhaustive knowledge of the future. Beware of anything that even hints of that. There is a teaching, like I said, the open theism, that is common actually in, in context of counseling, believe it or not. Matter of fact, I remember years and years ago, there was a guy down at Miracle Hill who was on staff there. I think once it started to come out that he was an open theist, he was taken off. But I remember, I remember meeting him in a restaurant one day and he was reading Boyd's book. And I just happened to pass by and I saw him reading the book and I just couldn't not say something. So we stopped and had a little chat. I think we talked about Romans 9. You just go for the jugular. He went, a book, um, I think it was called Open The Openness of God. Is that right? Yeah. That he doesn't, that God doesn't know the future exhaustively. Um, but this stuff is rampant in counseling because what they'll say is that if God doesn't know the future, it makes him more sympathetic to us, right? It makes him more sympathetic when things, when bad things happen. Like, listen, God didn't know this was going to happen either, but he's right there to help you along in your trial, right? And what, what Boyd is there teaching is, is he's teaching a false God because the only God there is, is the God who knows and declares all things. Yeah, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't he take him out? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So then you and I have to come to terms with the fact, and this is not really in my notes, but just in, just in general, just think of this. You and I have to come to terms with the fact now that there is only one God. And, and, and most of us have. But when you begin to think that you live in this world with Hitlers, the question becomes a little bit more pressing to absorb, right? Okay, wow. There are Hitlers. There are Mao Zedongs. There are... Paul Potts, there are these people. What do you do with that? Well, the one thing you can't do is you cannot say, well, God doesn't know or that God is too weak or God is contingent upon the will of men. That is not where, you, where we can go. We have to go to where the Lord tells us to go, to trust him. We have to trust him. He is God. There is no other. 
He is good and all wise. Me and the kids last night, we were talking about Job. And we were talking about the fact that they were trying to wrap their heads around the fact that God allowed Satan to kill all of his children. It's a hard one to, to smoke on a little bit, isn't it? It's a hard one to swallow. The kids were just like, wow, I mean, how? Yeah, what do you, what do, you do with that? How, how do you come to terms with the fact that this, 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 you know, this permit came across the Lord's desk and he said approved? Wow. And not only that, but then you've got Job after he gets, gets word that all of his family is killed. What does he do? It says he bows low and he worships. He worshiped God. So I told the kids, I was like, let's say today when I was away earlier today, I didn't come home. You found out that I was taken. Would you bow low and worship God? Should you bow low and worship God? And they were like, yes. <laughs> but it's a question, isn't it? it is, it's a real question. It's how did Job do it? How did he do it? Well, what does it say? Faith in God. Naked I came forth from the womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, the one thing Job could not say is that God did wrong here. Job knows, I don't deserve any of my family. I don't deserve any of my livestock or my servants. I don't, I don't deserve any of this. God brought me into this world and he can do what he wills with his own. One of the things Job knows is that God is good, God is sovereign, God is wise and worthy of worship no matter what. And so you and I have to have this heart. We have to have this perspective that, that we, people say we don't deserve anything. You do deserve something. No, you don't. You deserve the wrath of God. You do not deserve salvation. You deserve the shunning of an almighty and holy God. But the reality is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us far more. But Job's main argumentation is that I'm a creature. I'm clay. He's potter. And he's still worthy of all worship. And he didn't quite understand all that was going on. You and I have that benefit. Job didn't have that benefit. But my point is, is that when you are fully fixed on who God is, and he's the only God there is, then when tragedy strikes, you know, well, God wasn't taken off guard. This isn't something that you can charge, charge evil to God with, or fault, that kind of thing. Um, and you orient yourself as he's create, creator and your creature. And that's where you have to live. What ends up happening, though, as life doesn't go your way, you've got some choices to make, right? You can begin to domesticate God or think that he, is, he, doesn't, all, he doesn't know the future in some at least practical way. You might say he does. And then you begin to, to take matters into your own hands. Yara, what were you, what were you thinking? Well, I don't, 
just I'm more like stating that. Is, is that like the logic? That, I mean, that's the logic I use. Na- I think Job is saying, naked I came forth from the womb, naked I shall return. He's just saying that God, Job is not in control of his own life. You know, everything that he has from God is just that. Oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's for sure with Job. But I'm just saying, given what we know, like you said, yeah. that, that God's relationship, we don't, we don't come into him in favor. Men are not born in God's favor. They're mm-hmm. born under wrath. Right. And as such, we don't look at them and say, oh, that's too bad that happened to you. You didn't deserve it. We look at ourselves or others or whatever, and we say, you deserved it. But that's because of the fall. We don't expect him to treat his children that way. Yeah, but you still have to come to the ter- maybe, but I mean, you still have to come to the to the fact that Job was a righteous man. He was the Lord's child, which makes the sting even harder to absorb. It's not like Job did something in particular to deserve it either. But there's this reality that God is sovereign and creator, and Job is creature, and that if God does it, it's right. So, to your question about could he have done it in the garden, that's a I hate answering hypotheticals, but. One of the things that we know, though, is that whatever God does is right. But God only does that to people who deserve it, is what I'm saying. So you're saying Job did deserve all of his kids being taken away. I'm saying Job was born a sinner just like you and I. That's true, but that's not where first where Job goes. I'm not talking about where Job goes. Oh. I'm talking about the meta view of, yeah, of, course. of God's actions. Yeah. It seems like he, he treats us that way because of it. I mean, there's a reason for it. It's not arbitrary. God is not acting that way, will not act that way towards us in heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Nor did it seem to have done right. Actually, Act what way? What way? To kill us, to let towers fall. I don't think that God only allows us to experience suffering in this life because we're sinners. I think He's trying to teach us things. Matter of fact, because if you go that way, we're going to have to square up with Jesus because His whole life was a man of sorrows. So I think that I think there are greater purposes. My point ultimately, Yaro, and this is this is good sharpening. I think my point though is that God's purposes are good. God's purposes were bigger than Job knew. And one of the things that's happening in Job's life, which happens, I think, with all of his children, is that God is showing that my children will will worship and value me more than anything I give them. And he will shame Satan because of that reality. God glories in the fact that that's true. Yes. Yes. That's true. Not just because he's God. Yeah, I would. I don't know that I would separate that out too much. But anyway, maybe. Could you do that if if you if you? No, no, it's good. It's good. No, it's it's fine. Well, right. You're not going to worship what you don't value. Or love. Sure. Maybe, maybe Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know. We'd have to think about think through that a little bit. <laughs> what were you going to say, Christy? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Job had a, 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 unique, a unique sense of his own creatureliness and God's righteousness, goodness, and wisdom and creatorhood, if you want to say that. And it, because it's kind of like this Job's view was so 
entrenched in the fact that there's one God and who that God was, that these tragedies finally have their connection back to him. God, I mean, it, what else is it, right? I mean, Job, Job was not a, a naturalist. He didn't have any naturalist bone in his body, right? His struggle was ultimately, after a while, his struggle was, yeah, how could you, you know, allow these guys to say all this about me and this and that, and why aren't you stepping in, you know? So he sees all the events of his life as, as tethered to a sovereign God. And so, yeah, he's thinking, the Lord just took away. Um, and he wasn't, and, and the writer wants to make it real clear that Job did not sin with his lips when he said the Lord took away. The writer says that, I think, two or three times. And he did not sin with his lips when he said this. Fault to the Lord, that's right. Yeah, we have to live in that tension, which is a tension. But it's true. People get, want to get philosophical about it, and they say, well, maybe it's free will. Or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. Just, you just need to stick with what the Bible says. God is meticulously sovereign. This, this, was his, this was his will that Job's kids died. And it's not because Job did something wrong. And God didn't, was not at fault. Because there was a bigger battle going on. We've got to move on, though. Or we're going to keep going down this road. My fault, though, I opened up the Job can. And there we go. All right, so Deuteronomy 6. And just like that, we only have like seven minutes left. And I've only done two scriptures. I blame Yarrow <laughs> for that. I find fault with Yarrow. All right, Deuteronomy 6. In some of these passages, it's interesting because the Bible doesn't come to us in a, in a systematic theology. It doesn't come through, you know, listing out the particular attributes of God. It comes to us by way of how we regard him and worship and interact with him and respond to him, behave in light of him, that kind of thing. It's not bullet points of God is this, God is this, God is this, and God is this. So in, in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, Moses here Speaking to the people that are about to go into the land, he says this in verse 1. Now this is the commandment and the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So, so Moses here wanting to declare to Israel here, that the fact that the Lord is our God, the Lord that is I am, the one who spoke to Moses, who is absolute reality, he is our God and he is one. There's a sense in which he is a singularity, right? A single God. There isn't multiple different Lords. There is one Lord. He is one. There is one, Moses' point here, one supreme being. To, we, to which we give our utmost affection and love. God demands and deserves the greatest affections of our lives. And, and, and as 
as Moses and others go on to say, you shall not follow other gods because the Lord our God is one. So this has to do with your allegiance and your affections. The Lord our God is one, therefore your affections should be one. Remember Jesus said, keep your eye single. Right? Single, clear. Um, what he means by that is fixed and focused on one God, one kingdom, because there is only one. And to deviate from that is idolatry. And honestly, Jesus ends up taking the command of verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength on himself, too. Matthew Henry um, says this, happy are those who have this one Lord for their God. It is better to have one fountain than a thousand cisterns. Let that sink in. It's better to have one fountain source of life that's just ongoing and replenishing than, than a thousand cisterns that can hold water, but maybe there's water in them, maybe there isn't. But our God is a fountain. It's better to have one fountain than a thousand cisterns, one all-sufficient God than a thousand insufficient friends. There is one God, one Lord, and he's the true and living God. Psalm 96, 5. <clears throat> Psalm 96, 5. Verse 3. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So if you only had verse 4, you might think, oh, well, he's just the more stronger God among many gods. Right? Maybe they're there. Maybe they're real. Maybe they, maybe they have, you know, maybe they have dominion over particular localities or something like that. But our God's the one who's all. I think, what is that called? Isn't that a, is that henotheism? Maybe. Anyway. But that's not it at all. These are supposed gods. Verse 5. Why? Because all the gods of the peoples are idols. What gets me is when they say, like, he is feared above all gods. There are no other gods. That's what he says, yeah. There are no other gods. They're idols. They're false gods. They're not real. Matter of fact, Paul will say what? Let me, let me just read this. You don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 19 and 20. What do I mean then? That a, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And so Paul says that every other alleged deity, every other one, whether you're talking about Allah or Brahma or Vishnu, whatever other deity you're, you're referring to, they're all demonic. Every other religion outside of Christianity is satanic. That's pretty sweet. I mean, it's, it's pretty, wow. Wow. 
Yes. Yeah. If you if if you believe what Catholics actually teach, yes, it's a false god. It's a god who doesn't save by grace. So so this is this is a sweeping thing. So yeah, so it matters to Albert's point, it matters what god you're talking about. But the reality is that there is only one. All the other, I mean, think of that. The millions of people that make idols, that worship idols, that live for idols. They don't, know, they don't know the true and living God. But the Lord made the heavens, it says. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And then the last one, then we'll have to stop. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. First Thessalonians 1. The Lord worked through Paul to establish this church, Thessalonica. And Paul is commending them for their faith and their evangelistic zeal. And he says in verse 8 of chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So Thessalonica and the fact that God worked in that place and in those people, that news spread. Why? Because they sounded that forth. They didn't just allow people to come and see them and visit and say, oh, wow, you, know, you guys seem to really love the Lord. They were sounding that forth. They were going forward doing it, and it was going in every place, Paul says, in that area. So that, Paul says, we have no need to say anything. Well, what are they hearing them say? Verse 9. Paul and the apostles are hearing these other people, they are hearing them say, what kind of reception we had with you. So part of the message that the Thessalonians were going around saying was, look, these ministers of the gospel came, Paul and these other companions, and they were talking to us about the words of life and the truth and the gospel and the Messiah, and, and we were idolaters. And we turned from these idols to turn and serve a living and true God. And, and, and we, we, we loved these apostles. We loved these men of God. And that's what Paul says. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. To serve a living and true God. And that's really, ultimately, everybody. That's right. Abraham. Yep. Idolater, moon worshiper. To serve a living and true God. It's one of the most freeing realities there is. Is to know that you know the true and living God. Not a false inanimate God, but a true and living God. A God who hears, a God who sees, a God who speaks, a God who acts. This is who we serve. And, these, and, and when people become believers... They're eager to say it, right? They're eager to say, we're not idols. We're not idolaters anymore. And they want to let other people know that. So, all right. Well, next week we'll pick up with God as a personal spirit. And um, that's a wonderful topic. So let me pray or let me get somebody to pray for us. Kefi, you want to close us? Amen. Nothing goes by you 
Amen.